You're listening to the Wellness Insider Network, episode number 62. Welcome to the Wellness Insider Network podcast, a place where you discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and stress-free life with the right food, herbs, and self-care techniques. I'm your host, Lana Camille. I'm a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hello, Wellness Insiders. I hope you're having a great week. A little while ago, I shared with you an episode about cooking with cannabis. After receiving quite a bit of feedback, I wanted to explore other facets of this topic. It was very exciting for me to bring to you a colleague and a friend of mine, Bridget Condry, to do just that. Bridget began her career in New York City as the general manager of the City Bakery, overseeing a multi-million dollar operation that included two retail outlets, a wholesale bakery, and a full-service catering company. From there, she held several other important positions in the food industry. At the same time, for over 20 years, Bridget has been a student of traditional systems of herbal medicine. She has completed certification programs in the therapeutic application of essential oils, through Floracopia, and the farm-to-pharmacy program at Goldthread Herbal Apothecary, the first herbal CSA in the nation. She was also the proprietress of the Elemental Herbal Apothecary, an herbal clinic and product manufacturer serving her community in Berkshire County, Massachusetts. Bridget began her career at Champlain Valley Dispensary as the infusion kitchen manager. Within 18 months, she was promoted to director of operations, charged with implementation of the mission statement for this organization and standing operating procedures across five different departments. And we will talk about this in much greater detail during our interview. Bridget currently serves the organization as the Director of Outreach and Product Development. I personally wanted to have much deeper understanding of medical use of cannabis. Whether you have used cannabis medically or for adult use, Bridget shines the light on many important areas and offers important resources to educate yourself better. I know you'll appreciate this conversation. As always, you can find the links and additional resources in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 62. Enjoy. Bridget, hello. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you, Lana? (laughs) I'm good. Thank you. I'm really excited to have you here. We met in 2010 at the program that was called Farm to Pharmacy, and it was an apprenticeship with uh, William Siff uh, through Gold Thread Apothecary. And I remember that uh, you were the main chef for the program, and I just I remembered how delicious your cooking was. And so when we reconnected a little while ago, I was surprised and I was very excited to hear how your interests have evolved. What you're doing today is fascinating, and it seems to come up so much for me personally and for my students. So I'm so grateful that you're with us. Thank you. Uh, As we begin, I wanted to ask you to tell us a little bit about your path. How did it start? And uh, have you ever expected to be where you are today and do what you're doing these days? So uh, most of my professional experience has been in the food industry. So straight out of college, I moved to New York City and I became the general manager of a um, bakery cafe that grew into being a large production bakery that serviced uh, a lot of wholesale accounts throughout the city. Um, from there, I moved down to the Union Square Green Market, where I was managing their largest market, connecting all of the farms with different chefs in the city. Um, lots of other restaurants and food production kitchens that I've been involved in. But along the way, uh, the birth of my first child, I um, came across an herbalist. She was the assistant at my home birth, and I got talking to her about what she does, and I was very interested, and I became her student uh, pretty immediately. Um, And so I've been studying medicinal herbs for about 20 years now. 
Um, and out of that, I continued to work in the food industry, but I also started my own home business. I took a lot of different classes with different herbalists, got certified in aromatherapy and different herbal programs, went to William Siff's farm to pharmacy program, did his seven month internship, um, really learning how to grow your own medicine. Um, and I had my own home consulting business where I was consulting with my community and making my own herbal products. Um, basically for home health. Um, I got invited into this position um, because the medical cannabis program was just being licensed in the state of Vermont. And one of the primary players here needed someone to um, create his infused product menu. And I didn't have any cannabis experience up until that point. Uh, my experience had been with traditional Western herbs, some traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic experiences as well. But I did know how to make tinctures and capsules and saps um, and all the products that cannabis would be going into. Plus, I had the food background. I knew how to run a commercial kitchen safely to health department standards. Um, so he invited me to do his menu. And I said, wow, <laughs> I don't know anything about cannabis, but it's a plant. Um, I'm really into plant-based medicine. And so I took it on and just learned about this plant. So I went from studying a lot of different plants to really focusing in on cannabis and how to put it effectively into products that people could depend on. And it's been a real learn experience because it is one plant, but there's so many different strains, uh, so many different varieties that uh, there's just a ton to learn every day about it. It's a fascinating story. It really is. And what's interesting to me is that you're an herbalist. When I think about cannabis in general, I know that my students ask me from time to time, many of them come uh, to study herbal medicine thinking, "Ooh, I know an herb, right? So, and I remember we had a conversation and you were saying that this is a gateway herb. So people often start thinking about herbal medicine through cannabis. What's also interesting is that I have very little experience, like what you're describing, that you knew a lot about how to make things, but not necessarily how to do this with cannabis per se. So this last summer, I spent a little bit of time taking classes uh, with chef uh, Leslie Carrier, who uh, ended up doing a interview with me on cooking with cannabis. And so this is how my curiosity continued. And so this is why I was so excited that you are coming to talk about cannabis with the students. And I know that I got a lot of interest and excitement already in class when we were discussing what's going to be covered. I have a family member that went through cancer and cancer treatment last year. And going to medical dispensary was uh, very eye-opening for me because A, as a pharmacist, I thought, well, I know how typical pharmacy works. But coming to a place like this with a family member, I realized how little I know. And so I wanted to ask you to talk to us a little bit about what you do on a daily basis and what is experience of someone who is coming to medical dispensary would be like. I started out in the kitchen here at uh, Champlain Valley Dispensary. And um, we didn't know at the time if the program was even going to survive because medical cannabis dispensaries were just starting. I think there were maybe four or five states that had programs. We didn't know whether there were going to be customers because in order for customers to exist on the dispensary side, you have to have doctors that are verifying um, and giving them access to the program. So we started very small. And so some of the conversations that you were having with the, the cannabis chef in the Berkshires, um, that's how we started. You know, we were starting with just putting plant material directly into a fat because cannabinoids are fat soluble. They're uh, hydrophobic. <laughs> they really um, dissolve nicely into fats. Um, and so there's a lot of variability there because every plant, um, every harvest has different cannabinoid content every time, different terpene content every time. We can get into some of those active ingredients in more depth later on. Um, but you infuse the plant into butter or olive oil and put it into a recipe. But if you don't have lab testing all throughout that process, you really don't understand how potent, you know, how many of those cannabinoids and terpenes and other phytochemicals that, frankly, we don't know a lot about at this stage. Um, there's a lot of research that still needs to be done on this plant because prohibition really um, 
it, it didn't allow research to happen in, in our country. Uh, it's been happening in other countries. Israel is really at the forefront of a lot of research about the plant, but there's so much that we still don't know. And really, in order to do proper dosaging um, and formulating, you need a lab. And so when you're working in your home kitchen, um, it's hit or miss. You really don't know what you're going to get. Even if you're growing the same strain uh, or cultivar that people like to call them now, you're going to have different content every single time. Hopefully it's within a certain range, um, but there's a lot of variability. And so what we have here now, we, we gradually expanded from doing it that like old school um, way where we're just putting the plant material directly into a fat, where now we have a very um, extensive extraction process that we do through CO2 extraction that gives us an extract where we have a known cannabinoid content. We can analyze the terpenes in there, and then we can take that extract and, and put it into a recipe where we can figure out a consistent dose across a batch. Um, so that's a very important part of what we do. I started in the kitchen and eventually came to oversee the extraction lab and the QC lab, which does all the analysis for the different extracts and things that we want to put into formulation across a variety of different products. You mentioned several different cannabinoids, and perhaps it's a good time for us to talk a little bit more about them. So when someone who is listening to this podcast is thinking about cannabis, what are some of the main active ingredients that they need to be familiar with? So what most people are aware of is THC, um, because THC is the cannabinoid that's intoxicating. And we like to use the word intoxicating instead of psychoactive. Psychoactive is used a lot. Uh, in different literature, but CBD, which is the other main cannabinoid right now, that's cannabidiol. Um, that's not intoxicating. It doesn't get you high, um, but it is psychoactive because it does interact with your nervous system. And a lot of research is showing that it's uh, anti-anxiety, uh, it's antidepressive. So it is psychoactive. It's just not intoxicating. It's not getting you high. So those are the two primary cannabinoids, THC and CBD. Um, since I started working, um, those were the two everyone was focused on, and really it was THC in the beginning. CBD came on the scene eh, four years ago, probably, when Sanjay Gupta, the medical consultant for CNN, did that story on Charlotte's um, web, uh, the CBD oil that was helping that uh, little girl, Charlotte, with seizures. That blew open the doors to understanding CBD. Since then, we've added CBN, CBG, THCV, the list goes on and on. We're up to over 100 cannabinoids right now, and we don't know a lot about them. Um, so the primary ones, THC, CBD, they're acidic forms, which is how they actually exist in the plant naturally. Um, if you were to take a plant and flowers, fresh flowers right off the plant, um, and tested it in a lab, it doesn't have a lot of THC in it. What it has is its acidic form, which is THCA. THCA is non-intoxicating, but it does have therapeutic effects. So you could eat raw flour or juice with raw flour, which a lot of people do, um, and you can get the acidic cannabinoids, which are anti-inflammatory for one, which is a big one, which a lot of people use it for, and they're analgesic. So uh, THCA is getting a lot of focus, CBDA, the list goes on and on. Those are the cannabinoids, and then there are the terpenes. In the last couple years, everybody's talking about terpenes. Terpenes are volatile aromatic compounds. They're what's in essential oils. So they have years and years and years of research that have gone into terpenes to understand their therapeutic effect. That science is solid. And so those terpenes are what contribute to the the aroma, which a lot of people are attracted to when they are choosing different strains to smoke generally or to vape. Um, but they also have therapeutic effect. They're analgesic, they're anti-inflammatory, they're um, antimicrobial, um, on and on. So those are the things that are being focused on primarily, cannabinoids and terpenes. And those the major terpenes are linalool, limonene, um, terpineol. There's, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, and it's what makes walking through a garden of flowers really beautiful. And it's something that um, I think of David Crow a lot. I know David Crow has been on your show, um, but I've done a lot of work with him. He was who certified me as an aromatherapist. And so all the different nose training that we would do to understand the different components that are in rose or uh, rosemary or clove, um, 
I can walk through our garden here and I smell those same terpenes. And so what I know about essential oils, I could be like, oh, that smells like eugenol. You know, it smells like clove. It's got eugenol in it. You know, eugenol is very antiseptic. It's analgesic. So I can look at the plants and be like, oh, and it gives me cues into what their possible therapeutic effect may be. This is really fascinating because once again, it puts together so much of what we know about chemistry. And uh, it also makes me think about a variety of different names that you have on different cultivars and on different species that you might see in a dispensary. So what I also wanted to ask you before we go further is that when someone who doesn't know a lot about cannabis actually looks at the uh, different species or different cultivars or different parts of the plant, something like hemp, for example, how does someone think about it? You mentioned that something can be intoxicating, like THC versus CBD versus other uh, cannabinoids. But what are some of the parts of the plants that are used for different indications or perhaps do not have the same cannabinoids or terpenes? So one thing that I, that I wanted to say up front that may have been obvious with my description of my background is that we're not medical professionals. And I think that that is something that... Um, that people are expecting when they come into the dispensary um, is that it's called medical cannabis. <laughs> I must be dealing with medical professionals who are going to give me guidance on what to take and, and what are the active con, uh, constituents in these plants and products. Um, so that being said, um, when people come into the dispensary, um, generally they are, there are folks who are familiar with cannabis already, and maybe they weren't using it medically. Maybe they were using it recreationally or for wellness. Um, and they're coming to cannabis now because they do have a severe medical condition. Uh, so they're familiar with the different names, possibly, um, because they've been following different websites that list reviews of different strains. And the names that are out there, they're crazy. You know, they're, they're names that were developed by breeders that basically have been breeding underground for a long time. And and so they're familiar with them and they are looking for certain ones because certain strains have certain followings. Um, people who are cannabis naive, who've never used cannabis before, those names mean nothing. Um, and a lot of them are off-putting. And so we try to start out and just talking to people about what the different um, percentages of cannabinoids are in them and what we know about them and what the different ratios are. That's what we're starting to build now. Now that we can extract the way that we can and then refine those extracts, we can really start to formulate in an infused product and say, hey, this is a two to one THC to CBD product or a two to one CBD uh, THC to CBD and what those do is that we know that THC is intoxicating. CBD is not intoxicating, and it also has the ability to temper the intoxicating effects of THC. Um, we also know there's a synergy between these two now where it brings down the intoxicating effect of THC, and it amplifies the therapeutic effect and can make it more analgesic or more anti-inflammatory than THC on its own. So those are the things that we talk about uh, when customers come in. They come in, they talk to us about what their qualifying condition is. They talk about the symptoms that they're looking to relieve. And that's an important thing to touch on, too, is that we don't talk about cannabis as being curative. Um, there are people out there who are saying that, that cannabinoids or cannabis and different products that they're using has cured their cancer. Um, our state program specifically uh, doesn't allow any talk about that. And it is named the medical marijuana program for symptom relief. So we're addressing symptoms. People are coming in and they're looking to relieve pain. They're looking to relieve uh, inflammation, seizures. Uh, they're looking to deal with uh, stimulating their appetite. <laughs> uh, they're looking to help go to sleep. They're looking to deal with the anxiety that's associated with their severe medical condition. So we're look, trying to guide them through different products to address those symptoms based on the collective knowledge that we have from patients using those products and the research that we know about the different cannabinoids and terpenes. Thank you. That's very useful. So the uh, the second question that I had there is, can you talk a little bit about hemp? And then the other piece that I wanted to ask you about, indica versus sativa, how would someone understand the difference? 
So I'm going to take the indica and sativa part first, and then we'll get into hemp because hemp's a very big conversation on its own and is a hot topic right now based on the farm bill that just passed. Um, so indica and sativa, um, they are, they're having less and less meaning right now. Cannabis itself, the plant, the species is called cannabis sativa. <laughs> so technically they're kind of all sativas. Um, but sativa generally, um, the plant has been bred to be taller, to have finer leaves. Uh, they tend to have, um, Longer growth cycles, the bud structure on sativas tends to be a little bit less dense and airy, and they tend to be more stimulating and uplifting, cerebral. Um, hybrid or indicas, the plant itself, they tend to be short. They have really uh, wide fan leaves on them. The bud structure is very dense. They tend to have more of a body feel to them. Uh, they tend to be more sedating, um, and they have a, a shorter growth cycle generally. Um, so those are generalities about those two things. There are very few, um, hundred percent sativas and indicas that are still out there. Most of them are hybrids, which are combinations of the two. Um, and now they actually talk about how indica sativa doesn't really mean a lot. It's more about the cannabinoid content and the terpene content and really understanding what the phytochemicals are inside, understanding the chemistry about them. Because they're so mixed right now that um, it's more important to know that than whether something is an indica or sativa. That's the indica sativa question. Now, the hemp question um, is a big one. And hemp is a cannabis plant. It's part of the cannabis family. And the only thing that makes it different is a legal definition that the U.S. government put in place um, a few years back. And the definition for hemp is a cannabis plant that has less than 0.3% THC. That's the only difference. And so because cannabis has been prohibited for so long, it went underground and breeders were growing it for THC content because it was a black market. I don't know any. People just cared about THC. They didn't know about CBD. They didn't know about terpenes. They didn't know anything. It was just used as a, an intoxicant, basically. People could have been using it for wellness. I'm not saying they weren't, but it was all about THC and the effects that we associate with that. Um, when CBD came along, people started to breed those high THC plants to have more CBD. And so now we have hemp plants uh, that have a lot of, uh, that are CBD dominant and the THC has been bred out of them. Now we also know as of hemp as being a plant that's grown for fiber. You know, it's called industrial hemp. It looks completely different than the plants that we associate as being cannabis, but it is the same species, but it's been bred for its fiber and its seed. Um, true industrial hemp plants don't have a lot of cannabinoid content in them. Uh, hemp seed oil, does not have any cannabinoid content in it. And that's a place where a lot of people don't understand that. They think that, that hemp seed oil has cannabinoids. It does not. That's a nutritional supplement. It's used um, in recipes for food, and it's also used as a nutritional supplement because it has tons of omega-3 um, fatty acids. It's a complete protein, but no cannabinoids. No resin. It's not a resinous plant. And cannabinoids are all located in the resin and that's what's associated with cannabis. So it's that definition of 0.3%. Um, and now breeders are trying to create plants that have high resin content and that resin content is primary CBD and keeping the THC down. Um, there's still a lot of gray area. I mean, technically hemp and cannabis are federally illegal still, uh, the 2018 farm bill that just passed actually made industrial hemp not federally illegal anymore as long as the plant has less than 0.3% in it. But there aren't any rules that are put in place to really regulate it yet, and that's what's going to happen this year and next year. The USDA is going to try to decide how to regulate that market to make sure that these industrial hemp plants don't have more than 0.3% THC, which is hard to do, actually. Um, so. 
So that's the difference between the two. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And so uh, since we're talking about the regulation piece of it, I, I actually had a couple of questions. So you said that cannabis is still Schedule 1 federally, but mm-hmm. it is legalized in, I think, 10 states at this point. Uh, that's for recreational or for, for recreational adult use. use. For adult and, use. Okay. And so and there's is, over 30 medical states currently. Okay. okay. And so this is the question that I wanted to ask you about. What is the difference between medical use versus recreational and what is the regulatory issues related to this? So both adult use, and we like to call it adult use as opposed to recreational, because there's a lot of people in the adult use market who are using cannabis for wellness the medical market has a lot of regulation and requires patients um, to get verification from a doctor to have access to the program. And so in order to do that, you're giving up some of your privacy. And so, you know, you have to go through a state program. Your name has to be on a state list. A lot of times your applications need to be notarized. So it requires you to, you know, be in public and hand over documents saying, I want to be part of the medical marijuana program. And there are a lot of people who don't want other people to know that they're using cannabis. Um, And sometimes it's just a personal preference to have that privacy, but a lot of times it's job related. You know, there's a lot of professionals out there that, um, it can't be known that they're using cannabis uh, for legal reasons, or they might have drug testing or whatever the case may be. And so that's an impediment to getting people on to the program. Um, So a lot of people, when the adult use market opens up, they go there because they don't have to sign up for any program. Their their name's not on any list. Their, Their products aren't being tracked in terms of what their consumption is. They can just walk in just like they can walk into any store. The products generally look the same in both markets. They both have the regulation of testing requirements. So every state has different testing thresholds for contaminants, which we haven't even talked about yet, whether it be toxic solvents or pesticides or anything like that. Every state has different requirements about that, but they exist. They have requirements about listing the active ingredients. So you should be able to walk into either a medical dispensary or a adult use and see similar products. The main difference might be dosaging. You know, in a lot of states, the medical program, they're allowed to have higher doses than what can be bought in an adult use product. But uh, there's no difference in the actual products themselves. The services are different, though, as well. You walk into an adult use dispensary or adult use cannabis store Generally, you're not going to get the same kind of service that you would if you went into a medical dispensary that has consultations with their customers who are patients to really help guide them through a severe medical condition. Okay, that's great to know. Thank you. But can you also talk a little bit about the different types of products that whether it's someone who is using uh, cannabis medically or for adult use, like what, what is patient or client would typically see at one of the dispensaries? Sure. So there basically are five categories of consumption. There's inhalation, which includes smoking and vaping. Uh, There is sublingual, which would include tinctures, lozenges, oral sprays. Uh, There's uh, ingestible items, which includes the food and beverage. There's topical, which would be for local applications, generally um, addressing pain or inflammation. Uh, And then there are transdermal products. And so each of those categories of product have different general onsets of effect and durations of effect. And when you're a patient in the medical program, those are very important. Uh, Generally, the inhalation category has the fastest onset of effect. Generally, when you smoke cannabis, you're feeling an effect within five minutes. Um, But it has the shortest duration of effect. could last an hour, hour and a half. Um, The sublingual products have a slightly longer onset effect, generally up to about 30 minutes for most people. But once again, anyone who's consuming cannabis needs to do a trial and error basis with the products. They all act differently in each person, uh, depending on their constitution, their metabolism, uh, their diet, all of those things. Um, so generally 30 minutes for a sublingual product and they can last two to six hours depending on the person. Ingestible products, they have the longest onset effects. There's a lot of fear about edibles in the cannabis 
industry um, and people who are approaching cannabis for the first time because you've all heard the horror stories about consuming too much and then being uncomfortable for a long time. And that's why you always want to say go low and slow when you're dealing with an edible because it could take up to two hours before you register an effect because the cannabinoids don't make it into your bloodstream until it's gone through your digestive system, it's been processed through your liver, and then it gets into your system. And so that could take a long time um, in certain people depending on their metabolism. So they eat something and then – you know, after an hour, they don't feel anything and they eat something more. And then boom, 15 minutes later, they're in a place that could be very uncomfortable and they're stuck there for eight hours or 12 hours. The benefits of an edible product is that once you've figured out the product and the dose that works for you, you found something that's going to have a long window of effect. And a lot of people are using edibles at nighttime. People who have problems going to sleep, that's a huge one. People who have pain that wakes them up, they might be able to go to sleep well when they smoke because the smoke, the smoking of cannabis or the vaping of cannabis helps them go to sleep. But then they're, they're waking up in an hour or an hour and a half because the effect has worn off. And so if they find the right dose of an uh, edible, 10 milligrams, 30 milligrams, for some people it's up to 100 or more, um, they, once it kicks in, they get a full night's sleep. And that's one of the things that we hear over and over and over again in the, in the dispensary is like, wow, I have not gotten a full night's sleep in years. And if I eat this product, I'm getting at least six hours of sleep, which is super important because sleep is one of the best medicines out there. <laughs> it's the time that your body uh, devotes its energy to healing. So rebuilding uh, and restoring. Absolutely. Yeah. The topicals um, generally are pretty fast acting um, and can last, you know, an hour or so, but you can reply, reapply those easily. People are using those for localized pain, like arthritis pain in the joints or bursitis or inflammatory skin conditions like psoriasis. Um, and then the transdermal products are great. Uh, you can get transdermal patches, transdermal gel pens, and the cannabinoids and the active ingredients, the terpenes too, go into your bloodstream directly through the seven layers of your skin. So they, they generally start acting within 30 minutes and they're systemic. So even though it's applied topically, it is a systemic product that can give people all over uh, relief. We sell a lot of the transdermal patches. Uh, we brought that product on early on because doctors um, understood that product, you know, something that they felt comfortable with. A lot of doctors don't want their patients smoking cannabis. Um, so the transdermal patches are um, something that gets recommended a lot by doctors when their patients come in. Very interesting. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So I have a couple of follow-up questions. One of them is you talked about the importance of individualizing and figuring out the correct dose. So how would you typically recommend to your patients to begin this process? I like to start people on tinctures um, because tinctures are very easily dosed drop by drop. Um, and you can get tinctures. Tinctures generally, by definition, are alcohol-based, uh, but you can get um, glycerites, so they're glycerin-based. Glycerin is not as good a solvent as alcohol um, and sometimes aren't as effective for people. Um, but when you have a tincture and you know what the formulation is, you understand that, hey, a drop could be a half a milligram or a drop could be one milligram. We tell people to start with no more than five milligrams. I even recommend when people have never used cannabis before to start with 2.5 milligrams. Stay with that dose um, for at least a week, two weeks, so they can really understand what 2.5 milligrams feels like in their body before they start to titrate up. We're always advocating for people to find their minimum effective dose. We call it their MED. Um, and because past that dose, you can start having negative side effects. You know, there are negative side effects of cannabis. A lot of people who are using cannabis right now don't want to get high, you know, in the medical market. They're looking to address their symptoms and they want to be able to function. And so trying to find that dose where you are getting relief and not having any negative side effects, which could be that intoxicating high effect or it could be just drowsiness. 
um, because certain strains of cannabis or formulas of cannabis can definitely make you sleepy or lethargic. So starting low and slow, that's what we say, starting with 2.5, 5 maximum. Don't start mixing products. <laughs> start with one method of consumption and understand how that works in your body. Once you understand that, either start uh, adding to that dose to see if it's more effective to find that place. Oh, I got effectiveness. And now I'm starting to get a negative side effect. And that's where you stop. Once you understand that product, you can move on to something else. Um, if you're finding that, you know, the tincture gives you a two hour relief at that dose, but you need something a little bit longer then maybe start experimenting with an edible on its own. Again, start with two and a half to five milligrams tops, work with that for a week or two before you do anything else. Once you understand how the different methods of consumption work for you, you can start combining them. And so some people, especially at nighttime, giving that example again, people might use a vape pen, uh, which is easier on the lungs. Um, there's not a lot of long-term data about the safety of vaping, and we always say that to people. People think it's safer. Um, there is data out there that says it is safer than smoking because you're not inhaling smoke. <laughs> but we don't know the long-term effects of, of vaping right now even with a pure cannabis extract, never mind the other excipients that could be in there. Um, so they'll start with an inhalation because it helps them relax immediately and helps them get into that feeling of like bedtime routine. And then they might take an edible knowing that in an hour and a half, that's going to kick in. So they're going to get that immediate effect of relaxation and maybe pain relief. And then the edible is going to kick in right at the right time when they want to go to bed. And then they have that window of effect uh, through the night. Very interesting. Thank you. So two things that you mentioned there, one of them was adverse effects. So you talked about uh, drowsiness, you talked about being high, anything else that typically is reported? Uh, dry mouth is a common one. Certain strains, definitely when people are smoking them can cause your mouth to be dry. Anxiety, um, paranoia, you mm -hmm. know, taking too much of a dose. Um, it can increase your heart rate. Okay. Um, you know, if we're dealing with people who, um, who are older, um, a lot of times we're very careful about, um, sometimes when uh, they're using cannabis, if they're standing up too quickly, they could actually, um, lose their balance and, you know, and fall. That's something that we want to make sure that they're not doing. Um, so those are the big ones. I mean, the, the one that people are really concerned about is anxiety and paranoia. A lot of people have had experience with cannabis where they've had too much and they get that really uncomfortable feeling. Um, it might be associated with an increased heart rate, too, because once they start feeling anxious, those other mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of flight, flight symptoms come in. And, and so those are the main ones that people are looking to avoid. But intoxication is a negative side effect for a lot of people. Let's be honest. I mean, there is a, a euphoric aspect that's good. You know, I mean, getting high is not necessarily bad if that's where you want to be. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a negative side effect for people who don't want that. And many people don't. And that's why CBD or certain ratios of CBD and THC are really um, becoming uh, strong categories in the market because people want that symptom relief with functionality. Great. Thank you. And so yeah. when you're talking about in the market, one thing that I have a question for you about is with so many new products that are available on the market, how do you as a dispensary know how to evaluate these products? How do you know how to look at the manufacturers and really understand what they are doing? What are the delivery mechanisms? What will work better? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, we're, we have a unique situation in Vermont where our law requires us to be vertically integrated. And so we have to do everything ourselves. That means that we're growing it, we're extracting it, we're processing it, we have an infusion kitchen, we do everything from start to finish. So we know exactly how the product was made, which is great. Um, two years ago, our state allowed us to start buying products from other um, facilities, but there aren't that many in Vermont. Um, but what we do require from them is lab testing. <laughs> and that's what you would want from any dispensary. So once the market opens up here, and as the market is in Massachusetts, which is growing exponentially down there, um, you have to have lab testing on all the products. Um, all the labeling, it's required to have all the information about what the dosage is. So uh, those requirements are all in place, but making sure that every batch that you get 
uh, product delivered to you from another manufacturer has a lab report that tells you what the cannabinoid content is and what the um, contaminants might be in there that they pass those thresholds. And not every state has them. Unfortunately, right now in Vermont, we don't have access to labs that can test for uh, residual toxic solvents, uh, mycotoxins, pesticides, uh, or other contaminants in there, but it's coming. Massachusetts has very strict uh, thresholds for all of those things, and they're required. And so when you are talking about this, you are looking at it from a, pers a perspective of a dispensary. And if you have a patient that is considering using medical marijuana, how do you actually advise them on finding a dispensary that is reputable, that people that have done their homework, they know where they're going, what they're getting? That's a good question. <laughs> and so I think the only way that you can know, I mean, one, do your research ahead of time. I mean, most dispensaries now have websites um, that cue you into what their menu is, what their mission is, and you can quickly see whether a dispensary is truly uh, medical or wellness focused or really education focused um, because that's what customers need. They need that education. Um, and so starting there, looking at their website, but you really need to go in <laughs> and talk to the, the people that they have on staff um, and see what their perspective is, where they're coming from. You can walk into a lot of dispensaries and really be turned off quickly because it's that typical, uh, I hate to say it, but stoner mentality that's going on in there. And they don't know a lot about their products. I mean, all they know is what they're reading on the label or they're talking about what products they like. <laughs> I don't care what products you like, <laughs> you know, like if, or if they work for you, because I'm here to find out what works for me. And I want someone who can kind of guide me through what the formulas are, what are the, the onsets of effect and durations of effect. They need to have all that language in place. And if they don't, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't shop there because you're really looking for somebody who's a partner to help you go through these products to find out what works best for you. So I have two follow-up questions on this. So one of them is about shopping and just how expensive uh, the whole process is. And is there a coverage? Can you talk a little bit about this, especially for medical marijuana? And then the next question, you mentioned the education piece of it. And so for anyone who is listening to us, where would be some of the good places to start educating yourself? Cannabis, whether it's medical cannabis or uh, in an adult use market, is all out of pocket. And generally, credit cards are not a viable payment option because cannabis is federally illegal. So credit processors cannot process money that has associated with cannabis sales because technically it would be drug trafficking. Um, and so the only options are cash and some places have um debit cards. Basically, it's like a cashless ATM. It'll run it just like a, a debit out of your bank account. Um, some other companies are starting to have some other kinds of apps that kind of like give you a, a gift card. You, like you buy a gift card and I don't quite understand how all those are working. We do cash and debit. Most places do that. Um, so it's, it's expensive because it's out of pocket. It's an immediate expense. Um, and on the medical side, it gets really hard for patients because they're used to getting a prescription that their health insurance will cover. Um, so, um, you know, I could say that products range anywhere from $6 for an infused edible to uh, $30 to $60 for a tincture to if you're buying flour, you're looking at anywhere from on average, $250 to $400 an ounce out in Colorado, where there's a lot of cannabis, and I would say Oregon and Washington are in there too. You're seeing the ounce price of flower cannabis coming down. You'll see $99 ounces. I mean, it's really low. But here in, in New England, generally, they're in the $250 to $400 an ounce. Um, so that's expensive. You know, in Vermont, patients are allowed to buy up to two ounces every 30 days. So if they're buying flour, that's $500 to $800 a month out of pocket. Wow. Um, so that's expensive. But if you're already on a limited budget, $50 more a month is expensive, <laughs> you know, 
for your medicine. And so what we're finding, and we work a lot with doctors because really want, we want our patients or our customers to have the best outcomes, and they have the best outcomes when their healthcare professional is involved uh, in their use of medical cannabis. And so the conversation that we have a lot, and there's a lot of doctors here right now trying to reduce opioid um, consumption um, in our state. And so a lot of doctors are finding success transitioning their patients off opioids through the use of cannabis. And maybe not 100%, but what we're finding is that, hey, adding a little bit of cannabis to a pain uh, control regimen that includes opioids allows them to reduce the amount of opioids overall, which is a good thing. You know, sometimes you can't replace them completely, but what happens is the patients can't afford it. So they find success. They're really excited because they found something that uh, is pain relieving, that isn't as addictive. And yes, there is, they say 9% of the population is addicted or can um, get addicted to cannabis, but at least it doesn't have the life-threatening consequences that opioids can. I mean, you, you can overdose on opioids. You cannot overdose on cannabis, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But it's a real problem because the doctor calls and says, hey, can health insurance cover this? Because my patient is saying that they're, you know, they can't afford the $350 that they're spending for the cannabis that they're finding success with, and I don't know what to do. And there is nothing that we can do right now because until it becomes federally legal, uh, insurance companies won't won't touch it because it's it's federally illegal. So that's a real issue, and we're looking to try to develop some sort of like captive insurance up here in Vermont. That's like a private insurance that will become you know a private funding place so that medical patients um, can have access to some sort of um, support and that expense. Okay, that's great to know. Thank you. And then my second question was about uh, ways to start educating yourself as someone who is listening to this podcast, maybe not necessarily um, medical practitioners, but perhaps someone who is in the audience right now listening. Yes, yeah, so a great resource is Americans for Safe Access. Um, they have a fantastic website that goes that links to a lot of the uh, PubMed articles that goes through all the different methods of consumption. It goes state by state and explains what all the different rules and regulations are in each state. Um, so that's one good place to start. Project CBD is a place that I refer all people to find out information about CBD in particular. They do talk about THC and cannabis on that site too, but it's a fantastic site to understand the health benefits of CBD. Um, if you're really want to dive deep and you really like the medical aspect, the Society of Cannabis Clinicians is fantastic. Um, it is a group of, of doctors who have come together and researchers, and uh, they actually have practices where they're using cannabis as part of their practice. Um, and that website is fabulous, but it's a little bit more involved. So if you're a beginner, I wouldn't start there. I'd start with Americans for Safe Access or Project CBD, and then I'd, I'd move into the the Society of Cannabis Clinicians. And those are just three. There are a lot. I did provide you with quite a few more if you wanted to list those on your website as well. Okay, perfect. My last two questions for you. How can someone continue learning more about you and from you? Uh, can you tell us where the home for the dispensary online, your internet home? And then do you have any parting thoughts or words of wisdom for our audience? So... You can find me at uh, Champlain Valley Dispensary's website, which is cvdvt.org. And we have a resource page there that has all of the websites that I sent to you um, and a lot of information about methods of consumption. Um, so that's one. We also have a CBD-only business called Series Natural Remedies, um, and all the products that we sell out of there are hemp-derived CBD products, um, both from within the state of Vermont and from other states that have legal hemp programs right now. Um, so those are the two where I can be found. Um, and do I have any parting words of wisdom? Well, one of the reasons why I'm uh, in the cannabis industry is because I believe in plant-based medicine. And once I stepped into this field, I really thought, wow, cannabis really needs to come back into the complete herbal apothecary. And so I do believe that cannabis is the gateway herb. Uh, when we first started <laughs> six years ago, I was really gung-ho about putting cannabis into formulation with other herbs, like 
why not? That's what we do with all other herbs. You know, I mean, yes, sometimes we deal with simples. We get to know simples, meaning we only deal with one herb to understand its effects, but they're generally in formula, you know, to create synergies with different plants to help with sleep or pain relief or whatever it is. So, um, I started putting cannabis into other traditional herbal formulas and you know what? There wasn't a market for it six years ago. Um, and also I think because coming into cannabis for the first time, if you haven't been using plants in your life and, you know, taking herbal teas or, or using herbal products, you're not used to paying attention to yourself the way that you have to when you deal with herbs. You know, it's not like taking a capsule and, and having an acute immediate effect. Plants kind of push you in a general direction and it takes time working with them. It's effort. You have to pay attention to yourself. And so it's the same way with cannabis. I mean, we've been talking about that. It's a personal journey. You have to try things to understand what's going to work for you. Well, it's the same way with other plants. And I really hope that as we move further and further with cannabis becoming more and more legal, that's going to open people up to all those other plants that are out there because they'll help, you know, cannabis doesn't stand out there alone. It's stand out there alone because it was prohibitive. It really needs to come back in there and people can really see, wow, there's so many other plants out there that can help me too. And I hope that's what happens. I love this message. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, Thank you, Bridget. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank Let's you. talk some more. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Bridget Conry. You will find all the links mentioned in today's episode in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 62. Additionally, in the show notes, you can download Bridget's guide of five categories of cannabis products with their onset of actions, durations of effects, and advantages as discussed in this episode. So head over to wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 62 to download your own. Please subscribe to the show to get the future episodes automatically downloaded on your device. When you have a moment, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could share some love by leaving a rating or review about the show wherever you download your podcast. This is the best way to help others learn about the Wellness Insider Network, and it also helps to bring wonderful guests to join us here. This episode is proudly brought to you by the American Herbalist Guild. I've been a member of this organization for many years. Every fall, I attend HG Symposium, a great gathering of like-minded herbalists, where I always learn something new and exciting and network with others. Through this podcast, you've met many of the practicing members of the American Herbalist Guild. Professional members of this organization are recognized practitioners who have demonstrated to their peers their knowledge and expertise in the field of herbal medicine. General members continue to enhance their education by reading the Journal of American Herbalist Guild, their monthly member newsletters, having free access to webinar archives, an amazing archive of symposium lecture recordings, and so much more. Additionally, each member gets discount and offers on products, services, and tickets from some of the best herbal suppliers, schools, and companies. Check out the show notes or wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash HG and learn more about this great organization. Thanks again for being here. I appreciate you. Be smart, be healthy, be you. Be you.